There's no end in sight to a standoff that's rattled markets worldwide. But Donald Trump says trade wars are good. So does that mean this is the new normal? And then there were, well, we've lost count. Yet another Democrat jumps into the race for the White House. This is the state of America. We're not going to be taken advantage of anymore. We're not going to pay China $500 billion a year. President Trump is claiming that the U.S. is, quote, in a much better position now, that is, in a full-on trade war with China, with mutually escalating tariffs. This is rocking the markets. Right now, the Dow is down nearly 700 points. These tariffs are increasing the cost of living to average Americans. Is our fourth-generation farm going to still be feasible if the president doesn't wrap up these trade wars with a win. You want to know something? We always win. We always win. Hello, everyone. I'm Kate Baldwin in New York. To our viewers watching around the world, this is State of America. Hundreds of billions of dollars at stake. Global markets in turmoil. The world's two largest economies staring each other down. Sounds serious, right? Well, here is how President Trump sees it. We're having a little squabble with China because we've been treated very unfairly for many, many decades. Yes. A little squabble. That's all this is, or actually very much the opposite. It's a full-on trade war between China and the U.S. with really no resolution in sight. So let's take a step back and remind everyone how we got here. Back in the 2016 campaign, China was one of Trump's favorite targets. China, which has been ripping us off, the greatest abuser in the history of this country, China has been ripping us, and I have many friends in China, they agree with me 100%, they can't imagine, they can't even believe that they can get away with what's happening. And the president is not alone there. It is almost universally agreed upon that China has not been dealing fair with the United States for decades. Now, if China would simply let the market work on its own, we'd have no objections. But their policies currently are preventing that from happening. But to President Trump, the most glaring example of that ripoff, as he puts it, is the trade deficit. And as you can see, we'll show you, there is an imbalance. Last year, China exported $558 billion worth of goods to the United States, while exports going the other way added up to just $179 billion. The difference equals the trade deficit. And President Trump is sure that's a bad sign, even though that is not always so. The fact of the matter, the trade relationship between China and the U.S. is much more complicated and getting more complicated by the day. The president first targeted Chinese steel imports last year, and the Chinese retaliated, slapping new tariffs on American pork and other products. That kicked off a series of threats and tariffs. More threats and more tariffs. As promised, the Trump administration announcing a new round of tariffs on China, this time on $200 billion worth of goods. The new tariffs go into effect later this month, 24th. They start at uh, 10 percent and they jumped 25 percent at the end of this year. China then did the same on $60 billion of U.S. goods. Okay, then fast forward then to last week, which everyone thought was going to be the week that the U.S. and China struck a deal and put all of this to rest. Negotiations, talks, closed door meetings, all signs of progress. But that did not happen. And it all seemed to fall apart. We had a deal that was very close, and then they 
broke it. They really did. I mean, more than just more than renegotiate, they really broke it. So we can't have that happen. So the White House then more than doubled the tariffs. And you've probably picked up on the pattern at this point. Beijing responded in kind. So if this is what a trade war looks like, President Trump doesn't seem concerned about it, insisting it's China who's paying the biggest price here. A lot of people try and steer it in a different direction. It's really paid, ultimately, it's paid for by, largely by China. But that's just not the case. Even Trump's own top economic advisor had to admit that one. It's not China that pays tariffs. It's the American importers, the American companies that pay what in effect is a tax increase and oftentimes passes it on to U.S. consumers. Uh, Fair enough. In fact, both sides will pay. Both sides will pay in these things. But fair enough. And remember, the president famously tweeted in 2018 that trade wars are good and easy to win. But as this has dragged on and on and on, don't tell that to the Americans on the front lines of the president's trade war. Americans like Arnold Kamler, the CEO of one of the country's largest bicycle makers. This is the jobs of um, 200 Kent employees, and uh, bicycles are very price sensitive. And when bicycle prices go up, uh, sales go down. And so I will try my very best, if this thing does stick, uh, not to have any layoffs, but um, I can't make any promises like that. President Trump is also making the case that the Americans most impacted by this stand-up see the hit that they are taking as a sign of their patriotism. We love our farmers. We take care of our farmers. Our farmers have been incredible. No country can get in the way of our farmers. Our farmers are great patriots, and they've done a fantastic job. So our farmers are going to be very well taken care of. I asked one farmer who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 about this very thing. He says this trade war has left him in a free fall. Those are his words. He also said this. He said that we were patriots. Well, I'll tell you what, to me... That's just a design to make me continue to be quiet, and I'm not going to be quiet. For me to be a patriot, the best thing I can do is to take care of my family, to take care of my farm, and make sure that I stay viable. Now, please remember, the business owners in farm country made up a big part of the president's political base. That fact and this fight have even the most confident Republicans looking for the exits. Well, one thing I think we all agree on is that nobody wins a trade war, and we're all hoping as others have suggested here, that these particular tactics get us into a better position vis-a-vis China. Here is what we don't know. How much worse this is going to get or how long this will go on. But we do know that Donald Trump and the Chinese leader Xi Jinping are set to meet next month. And we do know that they have long touted their close relationship. My feeling toward you is an incredibly warm one. As we said, there's great chemistry. And uh, I think we're going to do tremendous things for both China and for the United States. And it is a very, very great honor to be with you. And with the world's two largest economies hanging in the balance, one can only hope that this love fest is enough to get those leaders to strike a deal before it's too late. So coming up, is it already too late? Has President Trump already painted himself into a corner with this trade war? Our panel weighs in next.
you want to know how to navigate a trade war, here is the solution according to Donald Trump. Via a tweet, of course. Build your products in the United States and there are no tariffs. Unfortunately for businesses in the United States, that's not like just a switch. You can turn on and off at a moment or, let's be honest, a tweet's noticed. Notice. So what now? The panel is here. Scott Jennings, a CNN political commentator and a former special assistant to former President George W. Bush. Josh Rogan is a CNN political analyst and columnist for The Washington Post. Lisa Lair is a CNN political analyst and national political reporter for The New York Times. And Jim Garrity is a senior political correspondent for The National Review. It is great to see all of you. Okay, Lisa, let me start with you. What is the view? What's the prevailing view right now from the White House? Where is the president's head on this in terms of the state of this trade war? Well, I think the president's head is partially, at least, on politics. This is something that the president believes is good for his reelection campaign. And we know his mind is on his reelection based on the number of times he talks about his uh, potential Democratic op opponents, mm -hmm. uh, which has become quite frequent. And he feels, and some of his advisors feel, that he won his election on the strength of his uh, attacks on China and uh, talks, you know, his discussions about trade. Mm -hmm. So they see this as a winning message heading into 2020. But look, you know, you can't fight the last war. This is going to be a different race. And what some of the other people in the White House and some of his other advisors are concerned about is the impact that this could have on the economy. Right. Uh, the strong economy is a great message for the president. It's probably his strongest message heading into reelection. And if consumers start feeling the pinch from this, which they very mel may mel well may, we saw Walmart coming out and saying that they will may possibly have to raise prices, that could really undercut that economic message. That's something that some people in the White House are concerned about. I'm glad that phrase is not, I'm not the only one that gets tripped up on that on live TV always, Lisa. Thank God for you. <laughs> um, so, Josh, Thanks. In, this, in the middle of this trade war, I, I, it does seem that both sides, from the president to China, that both sides think they have time on their hands. Why is that? And how can they both be right? Well, no, I think that. Chinese government clearly misread Trump. They don't understand Trump. And by the way, the markets also clearly misread Trump. They thought he was under a time pressure. He doesn't think that, okay? Uh, so he thinks that time is on his side. And again, we're not just talking about soybeans and bicycle parts and trade deficits. We're talking about the bigger issue, which is mm -hmm. forcing, coercing, pressuring the Chinese government to reshape their industrial policy so that they stop stealing American intellectual property technology to build a, the industries of the future that will surely overtake ours if we allow this to proceed. So that's where the jam up is, right? They're willing to give us soybean purchases, right? Mm -hmm. They're willing to do the, the trade stuff because that doesn't really require them to do anything. What the president did by walking away from the table is he insisted that they actually stop their wholesale theft of American intellectual property and technology, which has been going on for a long time. So I feel bad for the bicycle workers or whatever, but think about 5G, think about telecommunications, think about artificial intelligence. That's millions of jobs in the future. That's what uh, this is really about. And uh, if the president is willing to take a stand on that, I think, and, and if that causes a little bit of short-term pain for the U.S. economy, I also think he'll get a bunch of support for that. That doesn't mean it's going to work, but that's right. what he's doing, and that's the fight that we're in. And look, let's be honest. The, 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 the argument of short-term pain, long-term gain is always almost an impossible one to make politically, Scott. It's hard to make that argument, especially when the outcome is an uncertain one. It is not a guarantee. And that's why you, I, I mean, why I'm hearing some real 
trepidation um, from Republicans on the Hill. Some are saying the president's got it right, you know, short-term pain, long-term gain. Others really would like this to go away because they know exactly they're hearing it from constituents back home about the pain that they're feeling. What do Republicans what do Republicans do on this in Congress? Well, one thing about? is for sure. Donald Trump has done what other American presidents have said they would do, but never did. And that's actually stand up to China. As was noted, they have been bad actors on a number of fronts. And I think mm -hmm. where Trump gets support from people, frankly, in both parties, is for actually following through on the campaign promise to stand up to the Chinese. So that's number one. And I think mm -hmm. the political implications of that for him are, hey, we finally have a president who means what he says. Uh, number two, I think he does have some time. Obviously, the election's not until November of next right. year. And I think he was probably surprised that the Chinese, according to the reporting in the New York Times, uh, simply decided to renege on the agreement because it will help the president when this gets settled. The markets will rebound. People will be happy. Just the way we're seeing today with the tariffs being relieved on uh, Mexico and Canada, that's apparently happening right now. People mm -hmm. are going to love this today. They'll love it when he finally resolves the Chinese matter. But I don't think the president's ever going to suffer politically for standing up to people who have been hard on our farmers, hard on our manufacturers, stealing our intellectual property. He's finally doing something that other politicians have only ever said they would do. Uh, yeah, Ken, if I could look, just jump in for... Go, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, so if you look at who really supported Trump when he walked away from the table with the Chinese, Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders tweeted That's out their support, okay? Yeah. So it's not a political loss for him to do this. There are, Democrats know that this, this is a big long-term structural problem they need to fix, and uh, so that's why I think Trump will have broad-based support for this. But Jim, there is always a calculation, right? When you're, when you're making a, 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 a long-term better, you're taking a risk like this or taking a stand. There's a reason other presidents in the past have not, because it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. How yeah. is, what is the calculus of like how far, how painful does it get before he, a president like Trump would pay a political price for this? Um, it, it's interesting. You look at how far the debate on this has changed. You look back 20 years ago when the country was voting on permanent normal trade relations for status, there was a fairly broad bipartisan consensus. President Bill Clinton back then with the support of a lot of con congressional Republicans. Uh, and the argument was that expanded trade with China was going to push them a bit towards democracy. It was going to improve their right. record on human rights uh, and that we would, you know, have a, you know, it would get, make them less aggressive with their neighbors. Here we are 20 years later, and we could say that really hasn't turned out the way we've hoped. In fact, now we're all kind of worried about Chinese spyware in our cell phones. So I kind of feel like the, the center of gravity on this trade issue, specifically related to China, not necessarily on you, uh, Canada and Mexico and other countries like that, there's a much more broader skepticism towards China and maybe a general wariness towards China. So when people say this is a trade war, it's greatly reducing the trade interaction between the U.S. and China. I think a lot of Americans are kind of asking, has this been a healthy relationship for us? Have we really, has it, we know certain sectors and certain parts of the industry, uh, certain industries have benefited, but have all of us benefited? Have we paid a cost for this? Has this expanded our leverage over them? Or has this expanded their leverage over us? And that's one of the reasons why I think the macro argument Trump is winning, the specifics of particular industries that get hit hard by these tariffs, yeah. that's another story. And that's a much harder but story to tell. A macro, a macro argument is hard to make. Maybe not now, and Scott has a great point. There's time. But a macro argument like this, if it gets further into the election, is a tough one. Because, Lisa, really quick, I do wonder in this whole thing what matters more to Donald Trump. Is it look tough, be tough, and fulfill a promise to hold China accountable? Or is it keep some support, like supporters that I was interviewing in, in the past week? Businesses, farmers, keeping them happy. Because right now it does not look like he can do both. 
And it's important to look at one, where some of those supporter, unhappy supporters are. And you do see them, you know, in more rural states, right, more rural areas when you talk about farmers. And those are the people that came out in force um, in 2018 and helped Republicans hold the Senate. Um, they're the kind of support that Donald Trump is counting on, particularly when you talk about states like Ohio, where they can make the difference. Uh, that are crucial to winning re-election in a presidential contest. So we'll really have to see. I mean, it depends, as you point out, how far into the re-election cycle this goes and how much actual consumers and people feel the pain. I think uh, people can uh, feel that they agree with him on a higher, you know, macro level, as someone on the panel pointed out, that you you have to take a tougher line with China. But when it starts impacting, if it starts impacting people's pocketbooks, they may start to feel differently and they may vote differently. Yeah. And also, now that all of this, the talk of this is so public, I do wonder if the president has painted himself into a corner of not being able to give even an inch to try to get this deal inked because of what they're, because of what they're asking now. We'll see, because it is not over. Stay, stick with me, guys. And stop me if you have heard this one before. But another Democrat has jumped into the 2020 race. Yes, again, why this one hits particularly close to home for Donald Trump. President, I will take on the wealthy. I will take on the big corporations. I will not rest until this government serves working people. As mayor of the largest city in America, I've done just that. De Blasio for president, guys. Donald Trump must be stopped. I've beaten him before, and I will do it again. I'm Bill de Blasio, and I'm running for president because it's time we put working people first. That is New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing there his run for the White House. For those keeping track at home, he is now the 23rd Democrat vying for the nomination. So are all of these candidates a good or bad thing for Democrats who want to win back the White House? Let us get back to the panel for this one. OK, Jim Garrity, such a Democrat. Yes. Um, Fox News, Jim, has a new poll out. And this jumped out to me. The highest priority of Democratic primary voters is defeating Donald Trump. 73% say that's extremely important. And I'm kind of wondering today, does a field of 23 make it harder or easier for voters to figure that out? I think it probably is the sort of thing that helps some. Oh, my God. I've just seen the, the, the graphic of all of those candidates. <laughs> it hurts your eyes. You've added four in the course of this conversation. That's how big <laughs> it's gotten. Um, so it probably helps to like somebody like Joe Biden, somebody who everybody knows. He's a familiar face. He's kind of reliable. Every time they jump in, um, I don't think I don't know how many Democratic primary voters are really going to take the time to get to know the 18th candidate, the 19th candidate. Now, I don't want to be an un ungracious guest here, but I'm just going to observe. If I'm Irving Schmidlap, little-known Democratic congressman, and I'm working in Congress, nobody's going to pay attention to me. But if I'm Irving Schmidlap, little-known Democratic presidential candidate, well, then CNN and perhaps Fox News and other networks will give me an hour of prime time to talk at a town hall saying whatever I think. So no offense to the fine, fine people at the cable news networks, but I think they've kind of created the incentive for everybody to throw them in. Also, you look, if you're at 1%, right everybody's at 1%. Yeah. You are stopping right now. There's also an argument, my friend Jim, of if you are running for president, is it shouldn't you be able to have your voice heard just like everyone else or everyone would say something like the term a coronation like we have heard before of other well-known named Democrats but Lisa this does get to my question and maybe this is what my friend Jim is trying to get to de Blasio jumping into the race 
was met with laughter from many New Yorkers because he was advised, all the reporting is he was advised by basically everyone around him to not get in the race. Um, but when you look at it, he's finishing up his term. He's a mayor of New York City. Is there any downside to running for president for, these, for folks like him? I mean, look, as Jim points out, there are a lot of reasons to run for president and actually becoming president turns out to only be one of them. It's it's Um, lower on the list, even, I feel like. Yeah, it's lower on the list. So I think some of these candidates see it as an opportunity to raise their profile, to get that coveted CNN town hall time. But I do think there may be perhaps some more noble reasons to do this. I think that the Democratic Party is in a period of real unrest, both um, from a policy standpoint and from a leadership standpoint. So you have you see candidates getting into the race because they want to highlight a particular issue like Jay Inslee with climate change or want to make sure a particular viewpoint, be it uh, more left wing or more centrist, gets a foothold in however the Democratic Party uh, ends up taking shape in the Trump era, which has really been an evolving thing. Uh, you also see a lot of why not meism going on. So uh, it's yeah. Democrats if this, are really. If this guy or gal's getting in, why not right. me? Right. Why exactly. can't I? I mean, look, I, I, I imagine Mayor de Blasio is looking at uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and saying, well, that guy's whole city is the size of some city council districts in New York City. So uh, if that if he can have a moment, maybe I can have a moment. And I think there is some validity to that. Nobody knows. Uh, Dem- Democrats, we know they want to find someone who can beat Trump. Mm-hmm. It's less clear what that person looks like. I don't think Democratic primary voters have decided on that. So, you know, if you're some congressman or mayor or governor, why not jump in and take your shot? See if you're yeah. what voters want. And speaking of a governor, I mean, Scott, another person who just announced is the governor of Montana. And he is an interesting character in the sense that he is a governor who won in a state that Trump won by 20 points in 2016. He's not well known, if you will, nationally. He doesn't have like the Biden name recognition. But do you think someone like um, like Governor Bullock is more concerning to Republicans than a Joe Biden with a name ID like he has? Well, no, I don't think Republicans are concerned about him because I think there's virtually no way for him to get the nomination. I think what's important to understand about their (laughs) nominating process is that They've set up the rules so that you have to get at least 15 percent of the vote in any congressional district inside of these nominating contests to even be eligible for any delegates. And so right now, the only two candidates who are polling above the threshold are Sanders and then Biden, of course, who's the front runner. Everybody else is is below that threshold and therefore destined to fragment the field, get no delegates for themselves, but fragment any coalescing around either uh, Sanders or Biden. So the fragmentation uh, you know, would kill a candidacy like Bullock's or kill one of these lesser known candidates because uh, it's going to be hard for them to climb up to that 15 percent number. So uh, right now, I think the Democrats may be rethinking these rules because I think they've set it up uh, so that they have a really fragmented field that makes it hard well, for any of these lesser known people to rise. And kind of to your point on the rules could be deciding it, um, Josh, you've got 23 people in the field. The debate, the DNC set the, the cap of the debates at 20 people. If you get in, if you can't make a debate, there's no chance, Right. Yeah, I think that's going to be the first cut for sure. And I even think the a debate with 20 people is not going to be uh, manageable on, on its face. But I think what you're seeing here is Joe Biden implementing his strategy to present himself as a general election candidate in waiting by by framing it as a return to normalcy, as a, a, as really all about Trump. And he's betting that's how most Democratic primary voters feel. And see from the poll, you just uh, 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 mentioned that that bet mm-hmm. seems to be playing out. And all this week, all you've seen is these lower tier candidates just 
reinventing, repositioning, re-rolling out because they know uh, well, that their previous strategy, which is to not talk about Trump, is not working. Uh, well, so we'll Biden's strategy is working works. for now. There's a, there's, there's a lot to throw up against the wall to see what works this time. We've got more time. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. That's the State of America this week. Be sure to listen to our podcast. We'll see you back here next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.